This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Dennis Dunaway of Alice Cooper. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. History in five songs with host Martin Popoff, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by Pantheon Media. Today, we're going to look at the history of double bass drumming in heavy metal. And I want to add that because, you know, there is a history of double bass drumming, and then there's a present and a future and all that stuff that has nothing to do with heavy metal. Well, we obviously are dealing mostly with heavy metal topics here. We'll, we'll probably branch out as time goes on a little bit. But um, no, I wanted to keep this fairly tight and, uh, and, um, and, and make all of our references, our song picks in reference to heavy metal as it leads to an, an important sort of milestone in double bass drumming, which is the signature use of double bass drumming in thrash metal, which starts around 83, 84. So this is everything leading up to that. Um, but yes, um, we are going to keep it tight. We're going to keep it heavy metal. But before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of a, a history of, uh, of double bass drumming uh, lead, leading up to this. I did a book called Who Invented Heavy Metal, which is all timeline and quotes, and I put a lot of this in there. So I wanted to actually give you a little excerpt uh, from that. So, okay, let's go back to 1955, Louis Belson. Okay, so as as I say in my book here, Louis Belson pioneers double bass drumming on skin deep. It's really the first concrete and discernible characteristic attributable to thrash from old music. At a stretch, jazz has riffing and speed, but there's little relation to what is a heavily guitar-centric and mechanical music. But the drum set has not changed much over the years, and yes, there was experimentation with double bass drums. Um, I talked to Paul Bostaff, forbidden Slayer drummer. 
He said to me, who did double bass first? It's so crazy. Buddy Rich, he's been rumored to have uh, dabbled in double bass. I forget, I think there was one gig where he broke his main foot, uh, main kick foot, and he had to play with the other foot and just absolutely smoked it. But Louis Belson is said to be the first guy to really bring double bass to the forefront or other people's attention. I'm not going to give that one away because we'll get there. Um... But uh, a couple other ones that uh, that I mentioned in the book along the way that aren't going to be our picks for one of our five songs. Cream, Toad. Uh, this is this is like a song. Uh, it's one of the first songs, um, you know, in rock that has drum solo as the main part of the song. And there's double bass in there. Frankly, I don't think it's that impressive or pioneering double bass. Um, we've also got Vanilla Fudge, uh, Carmen Apice, February 1969. He's a purveyor of double bass in a rock context, as is demonstrated on the band's Shotgun song and attendant TV production video footage. Also had an entry in my old book, October 1st, 1973, Billy Cobham plays some fast double bass on his Spectrum solo album. So, let's get started. Um, This is History in Five Songs, where we give you the brief history of a topic in five songs. So, I'm going to give you our first one right now. Um, This is a little bit of Deep Purple Fireball. Take a listen. Okay, so there you have it. Um, Ian Pace. Ian Pace is not known as a as a double bass drummer, but um, this is a signature double bass pattern that uh, inspired a lot of drummers throughout the 70s and into the 80s uh, to take up double bass drum. It fired people's imaginations. So what happened here? So Ian's in the studio. They're doing Fireball. Um, this is also a song that's that's known as uh, you know one of the pioneering tracks in the idea of speed metal and again of thrash but um, and a big part of it is is the double bass drum so what happens here there's double bass is not throughout the song and as I say Ian does not play a lot of double bass but uh, Keith Moon had his his drum set sitting around in the studio and Ian just thought he would uh, he would try this thing out he grabbed Keith's uh, Keith's bass drum added it to his set and uh, ergo here we go uh, we have a, an interesting uh, double bass drum intro that uh, that a lot of drummers love okay so moving on um, Let's look at uh, something kind of related to uh, to Deep Purple. Um, this is Cozy Powell, uh, and it is Rainbow Light in the Black from the band's second album, uh, 1976's Rising. Take a listen. So, 
Cozy Powell uh, comes into this band, obscure drummer. He joins it. They're, they're sort of a super group. We've got Ronnie James Dio in there from Elf. But um, but essentially uh, what we have is is a post-Deep Purple band uh, started by Richie Blackmore from Rainbow. Uh, Cozy is not on the first album. He joins on this album. And uh, and he, he plays double bass in this song in a traditional way, in a speed metal way. Um, so this is also a song that fired up a lot of people. I mean, one thing about the Rising album that also fired a lot of people's imagination, I remember as a kid getting it, this was the first... Uh, the first record we had ever heard as kids that had no mellow songs whatsoever. There are six songs on Rainbow Rising. Every single song is heavy. Also on this album, he plays a signature double bass pattern uh, on the intro to Stargazer, uh, one of the eight-minute songs that takes up this uh, this side uh, along with Light in the Black. Um, but that song languishes into sort of a cashmere type song. Um, but the but the you know the beginning is double bass. And also when we get to the Long Live Rock and Roll album of 1978, there's a song on that which is another pioneering speed metal song called Kill the King, and you can hear double bass in that. You don't hear it so well because the production is kind of cardboardy uh, and the bass drums are, are not that prominent in the song. So there you go. There's our first two. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. When we dropped the first few episodes of Rock and Roll Archaeology into the feed three and a half years ago, little did we know that this telling of rock and roll history would become a pantheon of rock and roll podcasts. Since many of you first joined us on our rock and roll exploration, the halls of the rock and roll pantheon have filled with shows like Deeper Digs in Rock, Rock and Roll Librarian, Muses, Art of Rock with Caution Friends, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, Vinyl Snob, and more. We are proud of this one-of-a-kind approach to an audio magazine of high-quality shows. That is Pantheon, and thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you, our diggers who listen to all of our shows. And now, we are excited to let you know that every show available as part of Pantheon can be found in their own podcast feed to subscribe to in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows you've come to love. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our Pantheon of Rock and Roll and find them all at PantheonPodcast.com. Keep up the rockin'. Okay, glad to have you back. Um, moving on, so we've we've looked at 1976. Uh, a big deal in double bass drumming is Judas Priest. Now, I could have picked for you um, something off the Sin After Sin album, which features a young 18-year-old hotshot from the fusion world. Well, when you're 18, you're actually not from much of a world uh, yet. But anyways, Simon Phillips comes in. Um, he, he does very jazzy, cool, fusion-y, obtuse drumming on the Sin After Sin album, and there's some double bass drum work there. But what I wanted to play for you instead uh, was something that's a little more signature and, uh, you know, technically this drummer, Les Binks, is now a band member in Judas Priest. Um, let's take a listen. This is Exciter from the Stained Class album from 1978. Take a listen. 
So yes, Les Binks. Um, I want to read you a little uh, excerpt. Uh, I did a Judas Priest book, um, and uh, and I talked to Les, and we talked a little bit about double bass drums. So here's what Les had to say uh, in my uh, Judas Priest book, Decade of Domination. Uh, yes, I had dabbled with double bass drums before, but I didn't use them uh, the majority of the time. Not every circumstance or every situation that I was involved in required them. On this occasion, when they played me the Sin After Sin album, they had an acetate of that, a pre-release copy. And so this is the stuff that I had to learn from to go out and promote the album. And of course, Simon played a lot of double bass drum stuff on that album, so I had to quickly get another bass drum and learn all his drum parts. The very first time we got together to rehearse some of that material, I still hadn't got the second bass drum, but I had a little tiny 18-inch bass drum. So I set that up just to get through the rehearsal. But it wasn't long before I added the second bass drum to the kit, and the kits got bigger and bigger, and it's still quite huge today, in fact. I like playing multi-tom setups because the type of films that I do come off of when you're playing a range of tom-toms that go from very high to medium-low. I guess I'm getting a little off-topic here. Um, okay, so... Uh, moving on, we talked a little bit about, uh, in the book, Exciter, and then what does he say here? Yeah, so he says, uh, the first influence that comes to mind for Les Binks when asked about double bass drum playing is the aforementioned Billy Cobham. Yes, well, the thing about Billy Cobham is I was from a jazz background, especially in the younger days. Billy uh, is in his 70s now, so he's a lot more strange, shall I say, in his playing, but back when he was with Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin, he was very, very fiery. He had a lot of more fire in his playing than he has these days. And he was one of the few drummers from a jazz background to use double bass drums. I've never been a huge jazz fan, but Cobham I could still listen to all day. If you listen to his solo album Spectrum, the double bass playing on that is pretty much up there with the metal stuff, you know? There's a, there's a very good point. But looking at Exciter specifically, it was really inspired by Mr. Ian Pace in the song Fireball. That's the first time I ever heard Ian play two bass drums, and that surprised me because he normally just plays a single bass drum. So I wanted to do something along those lines. And it was just one day at a sound check with the band. It just came into my head, and I just launched into what ended up being the opening drum pattern for Exciter. It was just a spur-of-the-moment improvised thing that I came up with, and Glenn meaning Glenn Tipton's ears picked up when he heard me play it. He asked me to play it again and he joined in with a guitar riff and that was the birth of that song. Everything else developed from that. So there you go. Even Les mentions uh, Ian Pace and uh, and this is also a signature song in the idea. I mean all of this is put together. This idea of double bass and thrash really come together. Exciter is considered one of the pioneering speed metal aka or, or later to be known as thrash songs. Okay. So moving on, we are now up to number three. This is also a very, very important song in the, in the history of double bass drumming. On to number four, Motorhead Overkill. Let's take a listen. Okay, well there you have Filthy Animal Taylor and the song Overkill from the band's second album, Overkill. Um, super, super important. Again, Motorhead is considered a pioneering thrash band through the gruff vocals of Lemmy, through the, through the heaviness, and incidentally, uh, Overkill 
uh, was another album. Also Motorhead, Motorhead, also ACDC, Let There Be Rock, also the Sex Pistols album that us as kids loved because there was not a single ballad on it. There were no mellow songs. And of course, the fastest thing on it is Overkill. Um, I coincidentally also did a Motorhead uh, book and uh, and talked to uh, Filthy Animal Taylor about this. God bless him. He's now uh, no longer with us, as is the entire band that I wrote about in that book. That book was about the classic lineup years, and all three of those guys are now no longer with us. Um, so I talked to Fast Eddie, too, the guitarist. So here's what Fast Eddie said. And this is this is really cool because it actually relates very much to what you just heard from Les Binks uh, with coming up with Exciter not too much earlier. So when Overkill was written, it was, man, try this, exclaims Eddie. I remember Phil got a new double drum kit and we were sitting in rehearsal and he would go in and set it all up and we'd come around the pub. And he said, all right, man. And we started playing and he stops after we played for, I don't know, half an hour or something. And he says, hey, man. Why can't we do a song like this? And that's when he decided to do the double bass drums of Overkill. So he's sitting there going da 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 da, thundering away with the double bass drums because he was already speeding. He was kind of a bit like that. So he's thumping away at this beat and we're sitting there looking at him. So Lemmy starts playing that high bass part. Grr. And then I started making a bit of noise. Grr. And then we all crashed in on E and that was the making of Overkill. Once again, we did our usual thing. We rocked on with it for a while, and then we started to give it a bit of shape. And I said, here, let's do that there, and let's do that here. And then Lemmy stuck the lyrics on it. Uh, let's see. We'll skip that little part. Okay, and then Phil himself told me. It's funny, because it's only in the last few years that I've met a lot of younger musicians who are coming up, and one guy in particular said to me, man, you realize you are the first drummer ever in history to play two bass drums all the way through a song and like with the song not as a solo and I just looked at him and said no what what are you talking about man you're the only person you're the first person who did it you should be in the Guinness Book of World Records and I thought is that right really and I'm sure it was come to think of it a lot of drummers play double bass drum but it was always during uh, solos and so I guess I got that and maybe I should get into the Guinness Book of World Records I mean I've always liked the look of double bass drum setups. see this is a key thing with double bass as well a lot of drummers had them on stage and used them only occasionally in a live situation, but they looked so cool. And it also gave you kind of a cool place to put all the rest of your tom-toms and cymbals. You, you could have all these stands, you know, hanging off of this drum set that just continues to go around the corner. And of course, we eventually had Alex Van Halen with the four and the three bass drums and the two lined up in a row and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, and, and uh, you know, incidentally, Alex is also a big double bass drum guy. You know, uh, one of the big signature things, of course, is, is Hot for Teacher. But th that's, that's, uh, that's a little bit later. Anyways, back to our story. Because this is a key, key moment. Phil said to me, I mean, I always uh, like the look of double bass drum setups. The double bass drum setup always looked very impressive on stage. But being the sort of person I am, I couldn't be that pretentious because Lemmy and Eddie were always, ah, oh, man, when are you going to get a double kit? I said, well, I'm not going to be an asshole. There's not going to be drums or cymbals on my stage that I don't actually use. It's just so pretentious. There's the punk rock Phil for you. And there are just so many drummers who do that. I think it's stupid, but I just, at rehearsal time, doing a few gigs here and there, not making any money. Well, not making any money at all, really, but our manager at the time had a share in this rehearsal place, so I was just rehearsing. And so every time I would just get there a few hours early, and I was just practice, practicing basically with the basics, just a mummy daddy one, two, three, four with each foot. And that's all I was doing one day. And Eddie and Lemmy came in and happened to stop and listen outside the door. And when they came in, they went, hey, don't stop, don't stop. And we kept going, and that's how Overkill was born. Uh, and it was like a backbone to the song. 
With respect to direct double bass drum influence, Phil figures, to be honest, there wasn't really any apart from Keith Moon. So he mentions Keith. Uh, you know, Keith Moon was probably the only one who played double bass drums during a song, but even then it was just more or less like when he did a fill. His foot would go from the hi-hat to his left kick, and he would just keep time for the duration of the drum fill, and then he would go back. I think it was more of a nervous twitch more than anything else. Pretty cool insight there from Phil. And the only other person I would really have to say I listened to, but not intentionally, to learn anything from him was Louis Belson. But I didn't even know he had two bass drums. It's just that my dad was into jazz and he had one record by this big band where it featured a Louis Belson drum solo and I thought it was great. Uh, so he goes on. He mentions uh, he mentions uh, Brian Downey uh, uh, later. But again, uh, it's Ian Pace. He says, Ian Pace, he's the man. He can play one kick drum like some people can't even play two. So there wasn't really anybody that I particularly copied. So there you go. Um, that is a super, super important, um, you know, milestone in the in the history of uh, of double bass drumming. And let's get to number five. Uh, again, this is history in five songs. Um, we're giving you the brief history of something um, uh, in terms of uh, heavy metal. And like I say, we'll we'll do other stuff later on. But what I like about this choice is it is the bridge band and the bridge song and the bridge drummer to thrash, which uh, which one of its main characteristics is profuse use of uh, double bass drumming. So take a listen. This is Anvil with 666. Okay, that was the legendary Rob Reiner, uh, one of my favorite drummers. I love the personality he has. Um, he has a little bit of Keith Moon to him, a little bit of that chaotic energy, but he's also technically a, a, a beautiful drummer. He's a great drummer, and um, he is one of the pioneers, for sure, of double bass. In this, in this important juncture, um, that there was there was this short-lived, not often used tag or genre called speed metal, and it's essentially it's essentially you know take all the speedy stuff from the '70s, but really kind of speed it up with the new wave of British heavy metal, and then right in that sweet spot between the new wave of British heavy metal, which is sort of 1980 to 1983, uh, and the start of thrash uh, in basically July of 1983 with Metallica and Kill 'Em All, moving on to Anthrax, moving on to another um, you know Metallica album, Slayers in there. Eventually we get Megadeth, and you have the Big Four. Um, but right in that sweet spot, you have Anvil with two seminal, seminal albums, Metal on Metal from 1982 and Forged in Fire on uh, 1983. And what you have here in, in this 666 song is, is the exact thrash use of double bass drumming. You've even got somewhat of a thrash vocal. You've definitely got that jackhammering, palm-muted, uh, you know, machine gun type riff. And, uh, and so here we have... Here we have uh, someone bringing it all together in, in that very, very directly adjacent pre-thrash moment, uh, Anvil 666. 
So that's it. Hope you uh, liked our little treatise on double bass drum. Uh, yeah, just to mention a couple other things about double bass drum. So nowadays, you know, there are things like triggering, which helps people with double bass drumming, which which is essentially when you, you know, even if you hit the the drum, uh, you know, with with the uh, with the baton, with the with the mallet, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> the bass drum uh, stick. Um, it it will it will create a full bodied bass drum sound that is uniform, um, and this is used in the studio and it's used live. So it gives people uh, the ability to play much better double bass drums. There's also you know as an addendum, there's the idea of there are pedals now, of course, that uh, that will play double bass drum on just one bass drum. Uh, you know your left foot and your right foot are hooked up to the same. You know there are two two pedals going on the same drum. Um, but yeah, thrash thrash is the big place in heavy metal where you uh, where you get uh, double bass drum. One I forgot to mention. I didn't forget to mention. I agonized over leaving him out. I love Tommy Aldridge and what he does on the Pat Travers albums. You know he's an unsung guy in the history of double bass drum. I particularly point to a song like Hammerhead, which is an instrumental from the Heat in the Street album from nineteen uh, seventy eight. Um, but you know you hear it a little bit in uh, Snortin' Whiskey, Drinking Cocaine. He, he throws it into some of the other funkier numbers. Uh, but he's not a guy that is mentioned as often as Cozy Powell and Rainbow, you know, Les Binks, Simon Phillips, certainly uh, Filthy Animal Taylor. Okay, enough from me on this. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap up. Thank you again for list- listening to History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Um, I'd love to hear your comments. Uh, I'm pretty good with my Facebook. Go over and Facebook me. You can email me at martinp at inforamp.net. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a few episodes out already. Uh, you know, go take a listen to those. Anywhere you get your uh, podcasts, uh, this is available. Um, it's cool seeing it on Spotify, but yes, Pantheon Media, Rock and Roll Archaeology. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's leave it there and uh, and hope to uh, see you again next time. Thanks for listening. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than ninety countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 